welcome to the next edition of the IAOMS podcast series focusing on wellness. This episode is on PTSD in healthcare and with clinicians. We have the benefit today of being able to interview Dr. Patricia Watson, who is a psychologist for the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, which is a division of the VA. For those of you outside of the United States, the VA is a common acronym for the Veterans Administration, which is a government agency that serves the armed forces in the U.S. However, the mission of the National Center on Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder has a more expanded scope to serve others, and we are talking about the healthcare community today, which has been the focus of a good amount of attention of the center in the past several months. So welcome, Dr. Watson. So happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's very nice to be here with you. We understand that you have been working um, with you know, nurses and medical providers at the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center for quite some time, you mentioned, in, um, in the PTSD arena. So you've had an interest in this area for a very long time, but um, clearly the work around this topic has accelerated with the pandemic. So um, I want to talk about what people are finding themselves in as sort of a way of jumping off, you know, particularly when it comes to healthcare workers. As you know, we have 4,000 plus uh, surgeons from around the globe that listen to these podcasts. And many of them have been um, put into the front lines of um, battling COVID. They've taken on new responsibilities. They've been working with their own government agencies and um, regionally and in, um, you know, different countries and locations around the world. So um, can you tell our audience a bit about what evidence you are seeing of PTSD in healthcare workers overall? And maybe you can talk about what the issues were sort of pre-COVID and then what you're seeing now as a result of the COVID experience. Yes. Um, well, what I can say is that uh, there has been a you know a lot of research that's been being done on both the general population and on healthcare workers in regards to uh, mental mental stress, uh, mental reactions, uh, physical and emotional reactions to the pandemic. It's looking like amongst healthcare workers in general. We're not seeing as much in terms of PTSD as we have seen um, feelings of exhaustion or distress um, amongst most health most healthcare workers. Um, depression is showing up in about fifty percent, um, uh, showing symptoms. Anxiety, similarly, insomnia in about a third of people. Um, but we are seeing, you know, significant amounts of you know moderate to severe symptoms in a of exhaustion and distress in about a third of healthcare workers, depression in about, you know, 15 to 20%, same with anxiety and insomnia in about 10%. So it's a, you know, fairly moderate to severe symptoms in, in a, in a proportion of healthcare providers. Uh, We've had many conversations about PTSD in in response to the pandemic, and we have a full range of people represented at the National Center for PTSD. Many, um, feel that in order to qualify for a PTSD diagnosis, you have to have a very specific, what we call a criterion A, um, you know, uh, response or criterion A event, which means that you were exposed to something that is potentially traumatic for you. And uh, amongst our conversations, it, it seems that most of us 
are along the lines that if you if you're exposed to something that is horrific or you're you're exposed to death if you're exposed to the threat of death in yourself that that qualifies as a criterion a event but i think that research is going to bear that out over the next year or two um, we haven't had the opportunity to see a lot in terms of research studies about ptsd with the pandemic but most of us feel that particularly for frontline healthcare workers if they're exposed to something that's life-threatening that could potentially be life-threatening to their family members if they feel they're bringing it uh, into that you know, sphere of their life. And they're also seeing um, sudden unexpected death that is accompanied by um, the fact that people are isolated, can't be connected to their family members. Um, that this is something that they were completely unprepared for. We feel that that could potentially be a traumatic event that would be significant enough to create PTSD. We just haven't seen research that tells us what the numbers are yet because it's still, it takes a long time to do that type of research. And, and we're still, you know, somewhat in the thick of this, right? So right. I, I will say that if you look at prior research with SARS epidemics and that type of thing, those who contracted COVID themselves had a relatively significant, um, you know, amount of research, anywhere from a third to half uh, were experiencing post-traumatic stress symptoms. So if they had been diagnosed with uh SARS and had experienced it, then they were likely to go on to develop at least some PTSD symptoms. And when you also include isolation and stigma that comes along with being diagnosed with a highly contagious, potentially deadly disease, the, the, the risk factors are high in situations like this. Absolutely. I can imagine that they would be. When, um, when we're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, are we, um, is there a period of time after, you know, the, um, the event that would cause the PTSD that, that PTSD typically shows up? So in other words, is it a year out? Is it six months out? Is it two months out? Is there, is there any indication of, of what that time frame looks like? Um, that's a great question. And what I would say is that it seems to be um, very different depending on your audience and your circumstances so and and the type of trauma. So some people will start showing um, traumatic stress symptoms or reactions, we call them, um, immediately after being exposed to a potentially traumatic event. For other people, they can have um, somewhat of a delayed presentation depending on lots of different factors in their life, what's happening, what they have to focus on. There's some interesting information with um, first responders where um, they noted that when they're in the middle of a highly emotionally intense um, situation, their, their chosen uh, coping response is uh, distraction, which means that what they tend to do is to um, focus on what's in front of them, what they have to do. And they don't even allow themselves to attend to what's going on inside of them. It's actually highly productive and it's highly adaptive to what's going on. But what happens uh, is that later when they have less emotionally intense context, they will start to try to integrate what happened to them. They'll start to try to make sense of it, allow themselves to have feelings about it, um, reflect upon uh, what happened and integrate it into their their plans for themselves. They'll remind themselves that they got through it and they're safe. And they'll start to think about, you know, do I still want to be doing this? And they'll, you know, do a reassessment. 
The danger is that when you try to force people to have those processing types of responses too soon, when they're still in the middle of emotional intensity, you could actually increase their anxiety and increase their emotional intensity because distraction seems to be a relatively adaptive response to um, the immediate threat. However, the other danger is that some people get stuck in patterns of distraction and they just, they get into a mode of constantly distracting themselves and not allowing themselves to integrate what's happened and to process it and to think about it and to have feelings about it. And you tend to see that when people are highly avoidant and and don't want to touch uh, memories or thoughts or feelings about what happened to them, they're they're more likely to go on to have intrusive types of memories, nightmares, and responsive responses that could end up as PTSD. So we want to be careful with that, where we allow people to have both distraction when it makes sense, but also not to have that become such a pattern that they're putting themselves at risk for PTSD. And I've seen people um, who sometimes it takes them years to realize that something they've tried to handle on their own um, is has really become a pattern that's not healthy for them. And that's when they show up for uh, treatment. Um, it can, it can take sometimes decades for people, depending on what else they prioritize in their life. Um, and many people in healthcare settings, I think uh, one of the things I love about them is that they prioritize others above themselves. So they, they often are quite selfless and stoic and, Um, They tend to put other people's needs ahead of their own. And uh, because of that, they might actually be um, vulnerable to not taking care of themselves. And so they need to have a good support system around them. And and really much of this is self-diagnosed, correct? I mean, in, in terms of, wow, I think something's happening with me. I need to go get treatment. Otherwise, there's not really any mechanism for a healthcare worker to know if they need treatment unless they're realizing it themselves? Or is is there a mechanism to understand that better? Well, I mean, one of the things that we've been trying to um, develop and, and implement in the last year is a, a model of peer support, uh, self-care and peer support called Stress First Aid. Um, and it's a very simple kind of framework where we try to raise uh, healthcare workers' awareness about what seems to be related to better recovery through all types of prolonged, you know, threat or prolonged verse experiences. And it also seeks to raise their awareness about red flags. Typically, what I've seen is that um, oftentimes, it's actually not the person themselves who self diagnoses, but it's people who care about them, you know, family members, friends, colleagues, who say, look, um, I know you keep saying you're fine, but I know you and I've known you for a long time and I don't think you're fine. So we're trying to educate people in the vicinity of healthcare workers, you know, to take care of each other. We've had I've had so many people when we've interviewed them who've told us, you know, it's really important for people to do self-care. But if you look at the research, actually what's most protective is social support. And um, it's good for people to take care of themselves, but it's often uh, an impossible task because we put people in circumstances where I call it the figure ground effect, where there's so much known structure in, in your work environment. You know what you're supposed to do. It's very clear. The parameters are very clear. And because they're so clear, that becomes what you focus on. Um, The parameters for taking care of your heart 
and your feelings and yourself and your, your relationships are often less clear. So sometimes we don't pay attention to them because they're not as clear. And mm-hmm. so we're trying to, um, and so what happens is that when you look at the burnout literature, what seems to be more protective is having organizational support, um, collegial support, supervisory support, having um, managers and leaders who care and express that care, who reduce the stigma of talking about stress by being authentic and saying, look, this is a hard job. We need to take care of ourselves in the same way we take care of our equipment. There's no shame in having stress reactions. Let's all start to talk about it. Um, And in our model, we have a simple, you know, stress continuum that was based on work that was done in the Marine Corps prior to the development of this model. And that stress continuum basically seeks to say, look, we're not just in the, we color code it. We're not just in the green zone where we're well trained and focused and motivated and feeling good or in the red zone, which is, you know, you're ill. Um, what we are is on a, on a, a sort of a continuum where we go in and out of different zones of stress, depending on what's happening to us. Mm-hmm. So when you're on the, in the, most of us are in the yellow zone, which is in many ways, positive stress. It's what keeps us motivated. But when we start to get orange and into the red, we, we have to pay attention to it earlier rather than later. So we don't spiral downward. We don't start trying to cope with it in ways that act actually can be um, counterproductive. A lot of people cope with stress by shutting down their feelings. They become sort of numb and it actually serves them very well on the job. But when you shut down all of your feelings or you try to shut down just the negative feelings, you also inadvertently sometimes shut down your access to positive feelings, empathy, love, uh, care, um, you know, laughter, joy. And so that's why many times it's your family members who notice when you're stressed before you do, because you're in this kind of comfortably numb zone (laughs) and your family's saying, you know, I know that might feel good on the job, but you haven't really connected with us for a long time. And and I think you need some help. Interesting. And um, I would imagine that if someone is already prone to anxiety or depression or, you know, is experiencing a lot of insomnia, does that make them more likely to um, have issues with PTSD, or is there any correlation to that, those, those factors? So um, the way that I think about it is that the human body is, is quite a miracle when it comes to the immune system. And if we support the immune system, then the, the human body is miraculously able to fend off you know, as doctors know, tremendous amounts of insults (laughs) to the physical body. But I think uh, socially and emotionally, you have a similar type of thing. If you are um, not getting enough sleep, you're not eating well, you're stressed, your body's pumping stress hormones, it's not well fed. And I think that we know less about what the social emotional immune system needs than Mm. what we know about what the physical immune system needs. But I think that you know, what we know about stress is that people need to be fed by things that give them meaning, that give them purpose, that give them joy, that give them pleasure. And for some people that includes, um, and is very much um, um, fueled by social interactions with others that are positive and uplifting and inspiring. Um, When you get caught in a job that doesn't allow you the time to build in those things that feed you socially, emotionally, spiritually, 
I think your, your immune system, if you want to put it that way, can become weakened. And then you are probably more prone to burnout and stress reactions and depression. And that's what I mean when I say downward spiral. Once you start getting caught in that loop um, and you're not uh, making it a priority to say, uh-oh, you know, I've got to give myself, um, I've got to boost my my stress immune system, then you could cycle downward relatively rapidly. And really, we were in the perfect storm of all of that, weren't we, with COVID, um, particularly in healthcare, where there was isolation and all the stress and all the anxiety and the concern of contracting it and potentially spreading to their families and and a whole host of other issues. So, yeah. Absolutely. I would love to just ask you about an article that you co-authored that I thought was really interesting. And it was actually the title that first struck me. Um, and the title of the, uh, the article was Moral Injury in Healthcare Workers. So talk about what moral injury means and tell us a little bit about this concept, if you would. So moral injury has been around forever. And, you know, um, authors like Jonathan Shea and um, some of my co-authors, Richard uh, Westfall, uh, Bill Nash and some of my uh, people I've worked with on the military side have been talking about this for many years, but in healthcare, um, there's been more talk about it over the last decade, where there's a continuum where you start with moral distress um, and then work upwards towards moral injury. And, and it, it means that people are involved in experiences that are contradictory to, to their personal or shared values or their expectations. So they might feel that they made a mistake or they did something wrong or they failed to pre- prevent something, um, uh, prevent a, a death or a loss, or they, maybe they didn't step up to prevent unethical behavior in others. They might have witnessed others um, who uh, were engaging in things that, that, that don't map onto their own personal values, or maybe they feel betrayed by, by trusted others. And it creates this kind of um, um, feeling of um, if they, if it, depending on, you know, what the source is, if they've done something themselves that doesn't map onto their, their values, um, they might start to feel shame or um, depression or uh, withdrawing from others. Um, they, um, they feel sometimes unforgivable um, and, and it's hard for them to get over that. I've had VA providers say that um, moral injury and shame are actually like sugar in a gas tank. You know, they, they stop progress in treatment for PTSD because people feel unworthy to feel better. They feel they deserve to suffer. They feel they deserve to, you know, have um, pain because they cause suffering in others. Now, if now and on the flip side, if they're in a system where they feel that others are behaving in a way that's morally reprehensible or is not doesn't map onto their values, they can get caught up in feeling very helpless, um, sometimes very angry, um, you know, feel betrayed and it can be very, very tricky for them because they want to serve, they want to be of service to others, but they feel like the system that they're in isn't quite doing all that it could do to help others. And it can feel very frustrating for them, to say the least. I would imagine um, survivor's guilt is part of that equation. Yeah. I'm sure there are many healthcare workers that are experiencing that, you know, that, you know, how did, how did they survive when maybe they lost a colleague or, you know, patients, et cetera. 
Um, you know, I, I, I recently watched a, um, I don't know who's writing the scripts for Grey's Anatomy these days, but one of my colleagues told me to pay attention to the last few episodes. And they seem to be really trying to address this issue of um, uh, moral injury, um, as well as PTSD and healthcare providers. And I think they're doing an excellent job. So if anybody is inclined to watch shows, I, I think they did a nice job of it. But yes, I would say that um, this sense of I think one of the opportunities for healthcare providers is the opportunity that we know that stress can also lead to growth. There's a whole field of research about post-traumatic growth that, um, you know, if you're, if you're able to ride the stress, I live in Hawaii, so I think about surfing. I don't surf myself, but I see people surfing. And if you're able to surf the wave of stress effectively, um, you, you have tremendous benefit from it in terms of growth and wisdom. And it drives people to, to look inward and ask big questions about life and death, you know, that others who aren't in positions like this aren't faced with. So they don't ask those questions in quite the same way. So I think that each person is going to be unique as to what they come up with on their own about why they've lived and others have not, why they've been able to, you know, get through this in ways that others have not. And I think it's a very personal process that people have to go through themselves, but if they don't have the time to do it and they're really just struggling every day to get through the day, it can be challenging. These things start to build up and we, we can't work through them uh, because we don't have the time to even reflect. What happens to a healthcare provider that doesn't, you know, sort of uh, decompress or go through um, therapy or, or sort of dealing with their PTSD the next time something comes around that's very traumatic? What is it sort of a, a doubling effect or um, do they shut down or how does how does that manifest itself if they go through yet another trauma? I'm sure you see this in the military um, where they're, you know, maybe they haven't really um worked through their PTSD and then they're sent back out to the front lines. So there are, a mul there are multiple different ways that it ends up. Okay. I've seen people be able to um, muster themselves and get through it when, when they're in the middle of it. And I've seen um, active duty service members go through seven, eight, nine, 10 deployments over the course of a few years and they get through it. But I have also seen that um, it comes at a toll for many of them. And oftentimes the toll is that they, live, they lead what they call an unexamined life where they're just sort of surviving and they're getting through day by day. And there's something inside of them that feels like it's either inaccessible or has died. <laughs> and it takes a toll on their relationships unless they have extraordinary people around them who are understanding and supportive and have empathy and are in it for the long haul. If they have that kind of support system, I think they, they get through it and they do end up, you know, getting through it with, with wisdom and with, you know, compassion, um, but those who are not by any fault of their own are forced to kind of just keep shoring up, shoring up. <laughs> I got to get through another day, another week, another month, another year, another decade. Um, they can sometimes um, get to a place in their life where they feel that um, they've been injured by what happened in one way or another. And it either comes in the form of physical stress that their body takes or mental stress that results in anxiety, depression, substance use disorders, um, PTSD symptoms, 
um, a sense of isolation. Um, and it, it, it really, it depends on so many different factors. I couldn't give you any mm-hmm. formula that's going to fit one, but I would say that what we know that the things that we know that are protective across long, you know, periods of time are finding ways to feel safe. And, and each situation is going to be different, but moving towards a psychological sense of safety, moving towards ways that you can calm yourself. Um, Simon Sinek, uh, I think it's pronounced Sinek. It might be Sinek. Yes, Sinek, yeah. He he interviewed combat medics recently on his his YouTube channel. And it was brilliant because uh, these young men are, are, they they embody what we're trying to talk about with stress first aid. They're very matter of fact about how we have to take care of our body. There's no shame in talking about stress. We got to like, you know, get it out and talk to each other. So we know that fine. And one of them said, every person has to find what's relaxing and calming for them. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's a skill (laughs) set that you have to practice. So calming social support, trying to find even one person for some people, it's animals. I don't know, but others it's humans. Um, And then feeling like you can get through things because you have a sense of self-efficacy, which means I know I can do this. And lastly, hope. Hope is a very broad term. It can mean that you have a, a, a religious faith that's very strong for you. It could be your philosophy, your moral values. It could be um, that you're a naturally optimistic person or that you have resources around you to handle what you have to get through. So those five things, safety, calming, social support, self-efficacy, and hope seem to be like a toolkit that gets people through difficult times. And for some people, they just they, they depend on one of those, like religious faith. For others... They, uh, one of the authors of that paper that we, where we talked about these elements, Stephen Hopfall is the lead author. And he talks about having resource caravans that you take with you through the difficult times in your life. And if you can craft a caravan of people and coping skills and resources and ways that you uh, feed yourself emotionally, socially, spiritually, physically, then you are more likely to be able to get through these things. Dr. Patricia Watson, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been such a, an important conversation. And what I would like to do is um, get from you a link that um, goes to the VA's website and some resources that might be helpful to the surgeons around the world should they think they might be in a position of suffering from PTSD or know someone who is. So again, thank you so much for your time today and sharing these these really important uh, points around PTSD with our community. Thank you too. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you once again for listening to the IAOMS podcast series. IAOMS members receive additional benefits such as access to the IJOMS, educational resources, reduced rates for conferences, and more. To join or renew your membership, please visit www.iaoms.org. Keep up to date with our weekly podcast by following IAOMS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news. See you next week.